Welcome to another episode of The Chef Educator, the show that provides and discusses various teaching tools, tips, and techniques for the culinary, hospitality, and pastry arts educator. And now, coming to you through the airways from Palm Beach County, Florida, here's your host, doctor, professor, and chef, Mr. Colin Roach. Hello, everyone, and good day. Welcome to today's episode of the Chef Educator Podcast. My name is Dr. Colin Roach, and I am your host. Now, before we start in on today's topic, I want to give our new listeners a little background information on the podcast. The Chef Educator Podcast is a proud member of the Food Media Network and was created to be a comprehensive resource for both new and veteran culinary, hospitality, and baking and pastry arts teachers, instructors, and faculty at both the secondary and post-secondary level educational institutions. Our hope is to offer you a collection of practical and effective teaching tools, tips, and techniques that can be used in your culinary classrooms or labs. And here is a big ask right off the bat before we begin. If you enjoy this episode, or the Chef Educator podcast overall, please be part of keeping these resources free while also helping to support the creation of future resources by making a donation through our Patreon or our Buy Me a Cup of Coffee links, which are Patreon is www.patreon.com slash Chef. It's www.patreon.com slash drprofessorchef. Or you can do it through our other link at Buy Me a Cup of Coffee, which is www.buymeacoffee.com slash chefroach. If you contribute just the price of a cup of coffee a month, you will be helping to support the hosting, purchasing, creation, and production of our shows, episodes, and all the educational materials we produce and give away for free. Again, those links are www.patreon.com slash drprofessorchef or www.buymeacoffee.com slash chefroach. And I'll leave these links in the show description as well. No amount is too small. We truly appreciate any amount of support that you can provide. And I personally thank you in advance for your help. Okay, so now let's get on to the show. In the past two episodes of the Chef Educator podcast, you know that we had to do with memory and learning and working memory. Well, today we're going to kind of complete the topic of memory by talking about long-term memory. Now, a few of the books that I researched to get the information for this episode and that I will be referencing today are Upgrade Your Teaching, Understanding by Design Meets Neuroscience, by Jay Matigny and Judy Willis. Another one is Brain-Based Teaching in the Digital Age by Mary Lee Sprenger. Another is The New Science of Learning, How to Learn in Harmony with Your Brain by Terry Doyle and Todd Zakrasik. Brain Matters, Translating Research into Classroom Practice is another book by Patricia Wolfe. And the last one is The Art of Changing the Brain. Enriching the Practice of Teaching by Exploring the Biology of Learning by James Zoll. Now, I highly recommend you pick up a copy of these books, especially if you want more information on memory and brain-based learning. And I will put Amazon links in the show notes that you can use to uh, access the books if you'd like. You want to check them out and get a little bit more information on them. 
Okay, so people often struggle to recall even a single major point about some subject that they thought they had learned. And this is one of the reasons it is so hard to define learning. We only need to ask, how long does learning last to see the problem? If we don't use or repeat things, our memory grows dim. And yet, if something made sense to us or engaged us emotionally, we can also recall amazing amounts of detail in the short term and in sometimes in the long term as well. And memory is a complicated business for us teachers. We want our students to remember, but not to memorize. And students often use memorization as an approach to memory. They memorize in order to learn. But there is another approach that we, or that they should be using, and that is to learn so we can remember. And I'll get into that. So, of course, memory is also about time. Part of having a good memory is to recall things long after they happened. But there is also value in remembering things only for a short time. We may need information for just an instant to solve a problem, but then it is actually an advantage to forget that information and briefly replace it with something else that is important for solving another problem. I mean, think about if you everything you ever saw, exposed to, experienced, you had remembered, it would, it would be a waste of space. Some of that stuff we don't need, like, you know, we're looking for an address. Once we find the address of a store, we don't need that information anymore. Or what was the price we paid for some eggs, you know, 20 years ago? We don't need to know that price. So this is using memory to accomplish a task rather than an information source. And this type of memory is called working memory or short, short-term memory. In a way, it is more about forgetting than it is about remembering, since we need to empty the short-term memory space in order to put something else in there, and I covered that in a previous episode under the working memory title. Today, I want to talk about long-term memory, which is not just an extended short-term memory. It's not that. It's a lot more complicated. The, The two are qualitatively different. Long-term memory is that mix of feeling and fact that allows us to recall, or more accurately, reassemble information that comes from our lifetime of learning. For example, you smell a particular medicine or antiseptic, and the memory of a hospital stay comes flooding back into your consciousness, even though you haven't thought about that event for maybe years, decades. Or at a high school reunion, the sight of a former classmate who is in one of your classes, brings back a memory that you you didn't even know was there. Or at a party, maybe people are singing songs from the 90s, and you find that you remember most of the words of these songs, even though you haven't sung them for, I don't know, 30 years. Or, is a good one, you haven't ridden a bicycle. I haven't, I know, in years. But when your child or your son asks if you can ride, well, you climb right on the new bike, and not only do you ride it, maybe you show them how to do some wheelies or something, you know, some tricks. How did each of those things happen? Well, you can thank your long-term memory for its ability to hold on to memories for decades in some cases. And without it, you would be unable to learn or profit from experience. Life would be a moment-to-moment occurrence. Well, we can divide the things in our long-term memory into two categories. Those that we are conscious of, those are the explicit memories, and those that we aren't, which will be the implicit memories. 
And our brain is full of large amounts of both. And our understanding of what we learn is powerfully influenced by both. You may not have thought much about implicit memory, and that makes sense since it is, after all, implicit. But implicit memories exist, and they influence how we feel, how we respond, and what we can do. These are things that we do unconsciously, like walking or reacting spontaneous in specific situations. We are not aware of remembering them. This distinction between explicit and implicit memory has many implications for us as teachers as well. Behaviors, beliefs, and feelings can all be stored in implicit memory. So when we want to help someone learn, we must watch for these, as well as for what our students remember explicitly. Students may not know more than they are able to tell us. Our common experience, however, is with explicit memory. This is what we want to see when we are trying to help people learn. We often make decisions and judgments about our students based absolutely on their explicit memory. And this is often carried out through questioning, assessments, testing. And if you really think about it, people's lives are changed by the effectiveness of their explicit memory system. Now, it is common to divide explicit memory into two types, semantic and episodic. Semantic memories are facts, labels, and names of things. They are the most concrete of our memories. Often, they are the things that show up on multiple choice tests, or we see them on TV on game shows like Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? You know, they're those facts. To a great extent, we run our lives on semantic memories, our address, our birthday, the name of streets, towns, friends, faces, so on. It's just endless, right? These semantics. Now, episodic memories are stories. They are the memories we reweave as we recreate an event or an episode in our life. They may be the memories that we are most confident about, but they are probably the most likely to contain errors, simply because it is the nature of the episode we remember not the details. This could be like, you know, remembering a past holiday from our childhood or or our grandma's cooking. When we want to help people learn, as teachers, it helps to be aware that our students may not be able to tell us all that they remember, and that when they do tell us their memories, some parts may be wrong. And as a teacher, you might be correct not to trust memory when you assess learning. Now, long-term memory the last part of the information processing model that we've been talking about in these past episodes, is truly remarkable and what it allows us to recall. When we compare long-term memory to sensory or working memory, you know, both of those are relatively short-term, we find that the name is somewhat inappropriate because information stored in long-term memory is relatively permanent, although not always accurate. The capacity of our long-term memory is also unknown but it is considered to be extremely large, with some estimates suggesting that it contains 1 million billion connections. So now I want to take a look at the process that allows our brains to store and retrieve information over time, and the factors that influence the strength of these memories. It is a fascinating journey into the unconscious depths of human memory, and one that has powerful implications for teaching and learning. Although we often think of memory as a single process, 
memory storage is actually more than one type of process. As early as 1911, the French philosopher Henry Bergson stated that our past survives in two fundamentally different forms, conscious and unconscious memories. Scientists usually use the words declarative and procedural to describe conscious memory and unconscious memory. As already mentioned, other scientists use the terms explicit memory and implicit memory for declarative and procedural memories. I'm going to use the words declarative and procedural as these two forms of memory are localized in different neural systems. So let's talk about declarative memory first. This is the explicit memory. This is our ability to store and recall information that we can declare, hence the name declarative memory. Declare, we can speak it or we can write it. Unlike procedural memory, declarative memory requires conscious processing. It is a reflective rather than a reflexive skill. Uh, Instead of the automatic unconscious recall of how to do something, declarative memory permits us to consciously recall and discuss what something is or recall and describe an event that occurs in the past. This dual function has led to the subdivision of declarative memory into two categories. And I mentioned those already, episodic and semantic memories. So let's get into them a little deeper. Episodic memory is sometimes called source memory because it involves remembering where and when information was acquired. It allows you to recall a hike you once took, or how much you loved your first grade teacher, or a surprise party on your 16th birthday. It is your record of faces, music, facts, individual experiences, a sort of autobiographical reference. As critical as episodic memory is, I mean, it's important to remember where you parked your car, it can also be problematic. The brain does not store memories in a linear manner, like a a video camera records images, but rather it stores memories in in neural circuits or networks. So when we recall an event, we are actually reconstructing it. And even though many events are important or emotional enough to be remembered, it's the details that often escape us. In these cases, the brain fills in the details by a process known as refabrication. This process can be defined as the reconstruction of a memory from bits and pieces of truth. As we tell stories over and over, we embellish them, we add to them, we make them a bit more elaborate. Eventually, the refabrication becomes the memory, and it is virtually impossible to distinguish it from what actually happened. So even though the memory of the event is quite vivid, the details might actually be inaccurate. Now, semantic memory, on the other hand, is generally fairly accurate. Semantic memory includes words, uh, their associated symbols, rules for manipulating those words, and the relevant definitions. It also consists of rules of grammar, chemical formulas, mathematical rules, general knowledge about the world. And these facts are normally independent of a particular time or place. For example, knowing that 6 times 7 is 42 is an example of a semantic memory. Now, remembering what grade you were in when you first learned the multiplication tables is an illustration of episodic memory. So, procedural memory, which is the implicit memory, is best described as knowing how versus knowing what. 
it is sometimes called non-declarative. In other words, you do not need to declare anything. You may not even be able to say much about what you're doing for the information to be stored. Now, the first type of procedural memory is your ability to store automatic processes for routine actions. You can think of these processes as skills or the how to do things. They may be simple procedures such as walking, uh, tying your shoes, brushing your teeth, or they could be complex such as driving a car or decoding words. These procedures have in common their automatic nature. And after a good deal of repetition and practice, we can perform them without even a conscious thought. Cognitive psychologist Jerome Bruner called procedural memory a memory without record. The automatic procedures form a sort of unconscious stimulus-response bond. However, once we have a skill or habit at this level, it becomes difficult to assess it in any way except by performing it. Imagine trying to teach someone through explanation only how to tie a shoe or swing a golf club or write a word without physically demonstrating. We no longer know how we accomplish the procedure and its separate parts or rules of operation are virtually inaccessible to our consciousness. Instead, we need to demo it. Most of the skills mentioned uh, involve motor activity. But some types of skillful behaviors are not based on learned movement. An example of such non-motor skill is reading. Think about when you first learn to read. Your eyes move slowly from word to word. You are sounding them out. But with a great deal of practice, you move through the words much more quickly until you become a skilled reader, where now we just move our eyes about four times a second, taking in more than 300 words per minute. Now, a second type of procedural memory is known as priming. And priming involves the influence of a past experience without any awareness or conscious memories of that experience. In a sense, priming is similar to skill learning because in neither case are you consciously aware of what you're doing, which is why both skills and priming are sometimes called implicit memory, in contrast to conscious recollection or explicit memory. So human memory can be influenced by experience that we fail to recollect consciously. Seeing or experiencing something previously seems to prime our ability to recall it later. Procedural memory, whether the skill learning or priming, provides dramatic evidence that unconscious mental activities do exist. All right, let's switch gears here. Now he's kind of set the groundwork. So far, we've been looking at the big picture of memory and its various types. But it is important to remember that underlying our memory, regardless of type, are neural changes that form the physiological basis of information storage and retrieval. Now, there's still much to be understood before the mystery of how experiences are stored at the cellular level come close to being solved. But every day, every year, more and more info comes out on it. So whether the process or processes may turn out to be, the fact remains that when we learn, truly amazing changes take place in the neural connections in our brains. And the methods that we use as teachers to structure the learning experiences for our students affect the strength and the duration of those changes. So let's take a look at memory storage and retrieval. So suppose you were asked to recall an event 
in your life, perhaps uh, a graduation celebration or a surprise birthday party. In all probability, you would be able to describe many aspects of that experience. Maybe the people who were there, the food that was served, the room you were in, um, the sounds of the people. Maybe there was some singing, perhaps even some of the gifts you may have received. The memory probably came to you in a fairly complete form so that it seems like this particular memory must be stored in a special place in your brain, ready to be recalled in its entirety whenever you wish. Well, in actuality, no complete scenarios or pictures are stored anywhere in the brain. You have to reconstruct those memories every time. Now, while this may seem inefficient and even counterintuitive, the process by which we encode experiences and later recall them really makes a lot of sense. And I'm going to explain. In his book titled Inside the Brain, science writer Ronald Kudelak uses the metaphor of eating a meal to represent the encoding and storing of information, which I thought was perfect for us in the culinary and hospitality fields. And what he said was, quote, the brain gobbles up its external environment in bits, in bites, and chunks through its sensory system, vision, hearing, smell, touch, and taste. Then that digested world is reassembled in the form of trillions of connections between brain cells that are constantly growing or dying or becoming stronger or weaker, depending upon the richness of the banquet. So, when you really stop and think about it, this process is quite efficient. Our experiences are disassembled into parts and stored in specific networks of cells, meaning that the same brain cells can be used many times to recall similar things or colors or smells. So, instead of every experience having its own separate cells, which wouldn't be very efficient, the experiences share cells. For example, the cells in the visual cortex that allow us to perceive the color red can be used for many experiences, such as seeing a red rose, a red heart, a red car, the red in a sunset, a red steak, a red tie. And the same is true in the auditory cortex and in other sensory areas. So as you can see, in a sense, many parts of the brain each contribute something different to the memory of a single event. Our knowledge is built on bits and pieces of many aspects of a given thing or a shape or a color or a taste or a movement. But these aspects are not laid down in a single place. There is no memory center in the brain that represents an entire event at a single location. Again, that wouldn't be efficient and would probably take up too much space. Okay, so we may ask ourselves, well, if memories are not stored in specific locations in the brain, then how do we retrieve them? Well, as just mentioned, our ability to remember is essentially a process of reconstruction or reactivation, and the various elements of a past experience resides all over the brain. It's in the visual cortex, it's in the auditory cortex, and the other areas. Recall is actually an activation of all these separate sites in unison, creating an integrated experience. You don't even need all the pieces to reconstruct the total. You only need the definitive elements. Your brain will take care of filling in the rest. I mean, think about when you remember an event. 
depending on the cue or the reminder that triggered the memory, only certain fragments of the total memory may be activated. If the cue is weak or unclear, what is reactivated may differ from the original memory, or even belong to another episode and get it confused. This is why episodic memory details are often fuzzy or completely inaccurate, and why eyewitnesses to events are generally unreliable. So now let's talk about some specifics about declarative and procedural memory, which are the pathways to long-term storage. Though they share many of the same cellular mechanisms, they do not employ the same brain structures for processing. The two major structures involved in memory processing are the cortex and the medial temporal lobe. And it appears that the brain stores memories in the same structures that are engaged in initially perceiving and processing stimuli. However, these structures differ depending on whether the memory is procedural or declarative. Now, understanding the anatomy evolved in these two types of memory will further clarify the type of activities and practices best suited to each one. So let's talk about the implicit procedural pathway first. Do any of these following scenarios sound familiar? You drive your car along a familiar route, you arrive at your destination, and then you realize you're not even aware of driving there. You know, you didn't even think about it. Or when you meet someone new, you automatically extend your hand in greeting out of habit. Or how about, you ever done this? I know I have. You read a page of text, get to the bottom of the page, and realize you don't remember what you just read. Well, these motor skills and habits and perceptual skills are all examples of procedural or non-declarative memory, and all are accomplished without conscious awareness. Trying to consciously express any of these skills while performing them would impair your performance. But if you think back to when you first learned to drive or you first learned to read, none of these skills or habits were automatic, right? <laughs> it was a lot of work. They required a great deal of conscious attention and practice. In the early stages of these skill learning, three major brain areas are involved in laying down new pathways. And that's the prefrontal cortex, the peripheral cortex, and the cerebellum. Their combined activity allows you to pay the necessary conscious attention to the task and ensures that the appropriate movements are assembled correctly. With practice, however, these areas show less activity and other structures, including the motor cortex and the cerebellum, become more engaged. And once this happens, the skill becomes automatic and unconscious. I mean, think about when you first learned to slice mushrooms and chop parsley. You know, as chefs, I do it and I'm talking to people, I'm, you know, doing other things, I'm thinking about what I have to do. It's just automatic. But then think about our students the first day in the lab. You know, they're cutting their fingers and they're concentrated. They're paying attention. They're not distracted, but they're still, it's just, they don't have that motor skill. You know, it's not automatic yet for them. And in the late 19th centuries, two German psychologists conducted studies to figure this out. And they found that without disruption, the newly formed memories gradually become more stable. And they labeled this discovery in their research, consolidation. And we now know that memory is not formed at the moment information is acquired. It is not a simple fixation process. Rather, it is dynamic with unconscious processes that continue to strengthen and stabilize the connections over days, weeks, months, and years. 
Now, as mentioned, this is without disruption or interruption. And this is the key for us as teachers. Researchers have also discovered that patients who receive electroconvulsive therapy, which is a controlled series of electrical shocks to the brain, often forget experiences and learning that occurred just before they got the treatment. And this condition is called retrograde amnesia. However, if the treatment is delayed for a little while after the acquisition of this new information, the shock that they get is less likely to disrupt the recall. And the reason for this appears to be that after an event has been placed into memory, some amount of time must pass for that memory trace to become fully established or organized in the brain. And this is because at the cellular level, specific genes that produce proteins are turned on. And the synthesis of these proteins is essential for memories to become stable. In other words, to move from short-term to long-term memory. The long-term memory is formed by stabilizing the memory trace established immediately after an experience. The difference between short-term and long-term memory can be understood as the strength of the memory trace. So, the word consolidation that they came up with, their research, is undoubtedly enhanced by rehearsal. We know this as teachers. We know this from working in the labs. When we replay our experiences, when we talk and we think about them, we provide more opportunities for consolidation to happen, right? It's more fresh. It's staying, you know, in the front of our thoughts. Perhaps this is why instructions that allow students to connect new information to previous experiences increases the strength and complexity of their neural connections, and therefore, their retention of the information. So, consolidation, which is the label or the term that the researchers gave to the process, seems to be the result of biological changes underlying the retention of learned information. Researchers usually discuss the concept of consolidation in terms of declarative memory, information that we can speak or write which relies on brain structures in the medium temporal lobe. Recent research, however, indicates that learning motor skills, which is a procedural memory, also involves consolidation. This is good for us that teach labs. Researchers at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Department of Brain and Cognitive Sciences, discovered that learning a motor skill sets in motion various neural processes that continue to evolve after practice has ended. Now, when subjects learned a second motor task immediately after a first skill was learned, the consolidation of the first motor skill was disrupted, which weakened the retention of the information and the skill. This disruption, however, did not occur if four hours elapsed between learning the first and second skills. The researchers propose that motor skill consolidation relies on the same structures in the medial temporal lobe that are necessary for the consolidation of declarative or explicit memory tasks. Okay, so what does that mean for us as teachers? Well, it is awfully tempting to apply consolidation research specifically to our classrooms. Obviously, it would be helpful for us teachers to know just how long students' brains need to consolidate a particular skill before moving on to another. But unfortunately, the available research doesn't give us this kind of detailed information. 
But what we do know, however, is that consolidation occurs and that it takes time. We also know that teaching something new too soon disrupts consolidation of previous learning. What we don't know is how much time is needed for consolidation to take effect. Therefore, we should be wary of specifying time lengths between the introduction of new concepts or skills. So think about that. When we're teaching in the lab, we're doing knife cuts. If we jump too soon to say, you know, dry heat cooking or something else, that first skill is going to suffer because they didn't have enough time for that, you know, biological to happen with the chemicals and to really kind of get set in stone that they understand it. And also repetition, how many times we do it over and over will help build those neural pathways. So even though neuroscience seldom provides information that can be applied directly to classroom practice, we still need to take what we know about consolidation into account when we design instruction. For example, building elaborative rehearsal strategies into our instruction and allowing our students the time needed to process information in depth is good because it will most likely increase the strength of students' learning because these strategies allow consolidation to take place. Another way to increase the possibility of consolidation is to incorporate new information gradually and repeat it in timed intervals. Seldom is information stored reliably after being introduced just once. Most memories disappear within minutes, but those that survive are fragile and can be strengthened with rehearsal that is spaced out over time. Okay, I want to take a quick pause here at this halfway point in the show to tell you about what I think is a great resource for the culinary and hospitality teacher, if I do say so myself, and that is a book titled Culinary Educators Teaching Tools and Tips, published by Kendall Hunt. I co-wrote this comprehensive resource specifically for the new and the seasoned educator. It's written in an easy-to-understand style and book included numerous charts, templates, and examples throughout, and it's offered in both electronic and hard copies for around $40. You can get more information on the book as well as purchase a copy through Amazon, though I think that's a little bit more money, or through the publisher's website, which is Kendall Hunt, who published it. You can go to www.kendallhunt.com. It's K-E-N-D-A-L-L-H-U-N-T, kendallhunt.com. And of course, I'm going to leave a link in the episode's description in the show notes below. And you can click on that and check it out and just read more information, see the table of uh, contents, maybe even request a desk copy. Okay, back to the show. As we all know, most learning in life is incidental. In everyday life, we generally make no particular effort to record our experiences for later. Our interests, preferences, and survival needs direct our attention determine how well information is encoded. Although incidental learning has value, we cannot trust that everything we need to remember will be incidentally encoded. More often than not, we have to extend some effort to make certain that we'll be able to recall the information when we need it. No one knows more about how difficult this can be than us, the teachers. Students often memorize information for a test and then, as we all know, they promptly forget it. The problem is even exasperated by the demands on some teachers to cover more information. And in that case, covering is often all that's happening. There's no learning. It's just getting through the stuff. Coverage, which we all know can be defined as going over information superficially, does not build strong neural connections. And it is seldom 
remembered, or it is remembered incorrectly because we just superficially went over the material. This problem is difficult to solve, but perhaps the information we just discussed will help some educators out there listening to this episode, and maybe even the administrators who may be pushing the coverage pace, help them understand what is necessary to produce long-term retention of information, right? We need that rehearsal. I mean, that time to happen. We need that space for them to learn and to understand and to set in a long-term memory. And after learning about the research in this current topic, we are now all in a better position as teachers to understand why elaborative rehearsal rather than rote rehearsal is a more effective process for producing long-term declarative memory. The more fully our students process information over time, the more connections they will make. Thus, the more consolidation will take place and the better the memory will be. So now, let's move from looking at the structure and function of the brain and the memory processes to talking about how this knowledge might be applied to an educational setting. It is believed that one of the best laboratories for educational research is the classroom, where creative teachers like us work to make the curriculum meaningful. We try out new methods and we monitor and then adjust our instructions, and then we share what we have found to be effective with others. Pedagogy does not stand alone. It goes hand-in-hand with intelligently selected content that is structured within meaningful context. We need to ask ourselves questions, such as, what are the big ideas or concepts of this lesson? What is the lifelong benefit of what I am teaching? And how will my students be able to use what they're learning today in their adult lives? Too often, classroom instructions and activities focus solely on facts and details. While it is true that specific pieces of information are important, but they have limited usefulness by themselves. More important is what is called enduring knowledge concepts. These concepts are the broad truths that are almost universally valid, even as times and cultures change. They have direct application to students' lives, both inside and outside of the classroom. You think about the, the skills, the information that we are teaching them, they're going to go bring out to the industry. Another problem is that historically, we have taught subject matter in separate modules. For example, in time blocks at the elementary level or in specialized classes at the secondary level. However, in recent years, educators have tried to integrate various aspects of the curriculum into more meaningful units, which is a good thing. As teachers, we need to consciously select strategies that assist our students in learning broad concepts that are embedded within rigorous, relevant content. We need strategies that assist our students in recalling important information, both facts and their understanding of concepts, so there is an increase in retention, understanding, and the student's ability to apply the concepts that they learn. And as we just discussed regarding effective rehearsal, some important points are the more elaborately information is rehearsed at the moment of learning, the stronger the memory becomes. And the more modalities used to rehearse, the more paths that are established for retrieval. So think about that when you design your lessons. And the more real-world examples given for a concept, 
the more likely it is that that concept will be understood and remembered. No, not abstract, make it real. And lastly, the more information that is linked to previous learning, which I'm going to talk about shortly, the stronger the memory will become. We know that the brain is made up of complicated cells connected to one another in an immense network of fibers and branches. And these cells are called neurons. And the connections uh, that they, that the connections create are called neuronal networks. And as amazing as these networks are physically, what they represent is even more amazing. Neuronal networks are knowledge. Now, what do we mean when we say neuronal networks are knowledge? How can physical structures created by linkage of cells in the brain be equated to knowledge? Well, you might think that this means knowledge is stored in these neuronal networks. And that is true, but it is incomplete. Not only is knowledge stored in the brain, it is produced by the brain through formation and change in these neuronal networks. Any change in knowledge must come from some change in the neuronal networks. That's why I always say, let's leave in the faculty office and say, I'm going to change minds today. Because the mind, when the student comes out of your class or your course or throughout the year or when they graduate, they should be different than when they came in because the patterns, the structures of the brain physically changed if there's learning happening. The single most important factor in learning is the existing network of neurons in the learner's brain, what our students have in their heads. We should ascertain what that is and then teach accordingly. In other words, prior knowledge is the beginning of teaching. Now, this does not mean that teachers can look into brains and see the neural networks but rather that when we find out what our students already know, we are actually finding out about their neuronal networks. We are discovering the connections that they have in their brains. Here are three important ideas about prior knowledge. Prior knowledge is a fact. All learners, even newborn babies, have some prior knowledge. Learners do not begin with a blank slate. Now, prior knowledge is also persistent. The connections in those physical networks of neurons are strong. They do not vanish with a dismissive comment by a teacher or a red mark on a paper. And third, prior knowledge is the beginning of all new knowledge. It is always where all learners start. They have no choice. No one can understand anything if it isn't connected in some way to something they already know. And when we speak of prior knowledge, we are speaking of something physical. It builds as brains physically change, and it is held in place by physical connections. We could say that prior knowledge is a thing. And this probably sounds strange. We're not used to taking these concepts of learning and knowing so literally. But I found that this literal way of thinking is an important step towards understanding how to help people learn. It made me realize that I could not banish wrong ideas from my students simply by stating that they were wrong. This was the beginning of a great change in my teaching methods as well as many others. But let's not just take my word for it. Let's dig in further to try to understand it even better. And it all starts with neurons. As we know, neurons are cells. They may not be obvious when we first look at them. Generally, they're small, like almost all cells. But rather than round circles that many people envision when they think of cells, neurons can look more like a bush or a leafless tree in the winter than a cell. 
And it is all those branches that make neurons look so strange. And the branches can make the cell look quite large as well, but they are not that big. To put them in perspective, a human brain has about a hundred billion neurons. An estimates range as high as 10,000 connections per neuron. That comes to a total of a thousand trillion connections in an average human brain. There are 10 to 100 times more connections in our brains than there are cells in our bodies. Now, I said that prior knowledge is a thing, and that is because there is neuronal networks in our brain for everything we know. Let's look at an example. Each of us knows our name, right? We recognize it. We know how to say it. We know how to write it. This is part of our existing knowledge. Our ability to recognize our name comes from neuronal networks in our sensory brain. For example, if Johnny, John, sees the word John written on the whiteboard, a group of neurons in his visual cortex that are triggered by the shapes of the letters in his name, he sees it on the board, and they always fire together. This visual stimulus, John's name and writing, triggers the same neural network every time. To his brain, the name John is a neuronal network. And we can go on and on. John has written his name so often that he does it without thinking. A neuronal network in his memory brain is connected to another one in his motor brain, and he writes John without thought. The motor network for writing John is unique. It is his knowledge of how to write his name. And when he signs checks, John uses the larger neuronal network, which consists of a combination of his memory network for his name and his motor brain, which generates the movements of his hand and arm as he writes. And it seems that every fact we know, every idea we understand, every action we take has the form of a network of neurons in our brain. We know of no other form. Now, whatever the neuronal networks are in our students' brains, as teachers, we cannot remove them. No one can. They are a physical fact. As I'll talk about later, it may be possible to reduce the use of a particular network or to use other networks in their place. And some networks may die out or weaken with disuse, but no teacher with a wave of a hand, a red pen, or even a crystal clear makes total sense explanation can remove an existing neuronal network from a student's brain. So what can we do, you may ask? Well, the useful approach for a teacher is to find ways to build on the student's existing neuronal networks. Starting with whatever our students already know and building from there is a biologically based idea for pedagogy. It suggests that we should find out what our students believe, and instead of disparaging it or trying to ignore it, use it as a tool for teaching. In other words, existing neuronal networks open the door to effective teaching. So as teachers, some of us may ask if there are common sets of neural networks that we can begin with. Can we assume anything about what students already know? Well, yes. One thing we can be sure of is that neuronal networks in our students' brains are related to their own life experience, right? Everyone brings in something different to the classroom. The things they personally have seen, heard, touched, smelled, tasted are what connect for them. And things they have tried to do or have succeeded in doing will also be in there. There are neuronal networks for the facts of their own lives. 
Now, we can generalize from our, about our students, at least a little. We can assume that most of our students will understand when we speak of things. They have all experienced the objectives in their worlds, the language they share, the music, the shapes, the textures, smells, tastes will all be there. Now, certainly there are going to be differences, things sensed by one brain but not by another, but this generalization gives us a starting point. And that's why we do questioning. We have discussions with the class so we can see if their prior knowledge is the same for all in our class before we introduce maybe a lesson or we're trying to find those things that we can hook to when we go on to our lessons. Now, our brains make physical maps of the world and the existing neuronal networks are replicas of the physical form of the objects in the world. Those objects and events that make up our concrete experiences. So the neuronal networks formed when we sense the outside world are most likely to be similar in each of us because they are created from the same source, which is the physical world. How we interpret them or perceive them, though, is another matter. We may well come to think that almost every brain makes a somewhat different meaning from the same concrete facts. Our perceptions and meanings come from the influence of neuronal networks in other non-sensory parts of the brain. So we can't assume anything regarding meaning. Now, despite this personal modification of sensory experience into perception, it still seems that a teacher's best chance is to begin with concrete examples. The abstract and theoretical have less meaning if there's no neuronal networks associated with the concrete experiences of the learner. We have nothing to hook to, right? For example, medical education might start with the patients, right? That they're going to take care of. Arithmetic might start with purchases at the store, right? So now it's real life. It's not abstract. They can, you know, it's a person. It's a thing. It's, it's something they've done. It's an experience. Likewise, understanding of genetics might start with a learner's family traits. I know some of our nutrition teachers used to do that. They want them to do look into their own family's history and what diseases and illnesses they may have had and their diets. So now it's personal, right? They can relate and before they go into, you know, the medical type terms in nutrition. Maybe if you teach economics or you teach math, we could start with the cost of a cell phone because that's something majority of our students can relate to because they all have cell phones. They know how much it costs and they're on a payment plan. So again, we're trying to hook that to previous knowledge. And now these suggestions are really just another way to reaffirm the claim that what we already know is concrete to us. Our knowledge of it makes it real or part of our experience, which is why it is best as teachers that we use examples that our students can relate to. Now, however, especially in higher education, teachers do not necessarily start with the concrete. Our deeper understanding of our fields can lead us to start with principles rather than examples. We may think we should provide students with the tools for solving problems before we show them what the actual problem is. Oh, we may start with the atom rather than the object, the equation rather than the phenomenon, the concept of supply and demand rather than economic stories. We start, unfortunately, where we are oftentimes, not where our students are. Now, each learner brings his or her own special set of neuronal networks to class. And there's nothing we can do about that. They really can't check them at the door. These networks are a true tangle, some with branches hanging off one side or the other, some drooping, 
on the uh, ground, some sticking bare, brave into the sky, some with weak connections to others, some with strong connections to others. We see this in our experience with students as we come to know about their needs, their misunderstandings, their partial ideas, their talents, their skills. Each student is unique. They bring different things to the table. And oftentimes, our inclination is to straighten out this tangle. We want to correct what we find to be an error, trim up those loose ends, prune out the useless branches, construct new ones that will be more valuable. It's simple, right? We'll just explain what is right, what is wrong, and that will be that. And often we cling tightly to this illusion, but we know that this doesn't work. It's not possible to get in and fix things. This is one of the most important yet simple ideas that biology can give teachers. We must let our students use the neuronal networks they already have. We cannot create new ones out of thin air by putting them on the board. and We cannot erase or remove old ones. The only resource we have is to begin with what the learner brings to the table. Of course, we know that this tango happens in all classes all the time. Even the most focused of brains finds themselves bouncing from neuronal network to neuronal network in a lecture or during a lesson, and the connections are totally unpredictable. A single word can send a mind off to a tangle of neuronal network underbrush, and we have to remember this is happening with every student in our classes. And to me, this is one of the real challenges in teaching, right? 40 students in some of my classes. They're all different neural networks they bring with them. They're all thinking about different things. I'm trying to corral them all into whatever I'm trying to get across. So as we near the end of this episode, I want to wrap up by saying that a good teacher is not just someone who explains things correctly, but rather one who puts things in an interesting way. What this suggests is that such a teacher knows what will be interesting to their students right? In that specific class. It could have been different in your last class, the last year, last term, last semester. You need to find out who those students are in this class. They're different than the ones from your last class. And you need to know about existing neuronal networks of those students that are there today in front of you. One method that I have used in my smaller classes to address what we've just been talking about is to have my students explain their previous knowledge and ideas about the subject matter of that particular class. And I have a number of ways that I can do this, including using prior knowledge self-assessments, which I talk about much more in detail in my book titled Culinary Educators Teaching Tools and Tips that I already told you about. And as I mentioned earlier, if you want to check out the book or get a copy of it for yourself, go to the publisher's website, www.kendallhunt.com. I'll also leave their link, as I mentioned, in the show notes or episode description for you if you want to check it out as well. But you could also just Google it and find out how you can find out the prior knowledge of your current students. There's a lot of things out there you can do, but that's for another episode. So in conclusion, I want to recap by going over several of the key ideas that we learned and talked about today. One, all students have prior knowledge, which affects how they respond to our teaching. Number two, the prior knowledge that our students have is not intangible. It is physical, it is real, and it is persistent. Three, if we ignore or avoid prior knowledge, it will hinder our teaching and our students' learning. Four, prior knowledge is complex and personal. 
and students are not necessarily even aware of all of their prior knowledge. Writing assignments are helpful in discovering prior knowledge of students, one of the things that I do a lot of. Number six, prior knowledge is likely to be concrete, as we mentioned. So as teachers, we should begin with the concrete. Number seven, concepts and broad principles should be developed from specific examples, real-life, understandable examples. Lastly, prior knowledge is a gift to us as teachers because it tells us where and how to start with that specific class, that specific student. Well, that is all the time we have for this episode of the Chef Educator Podcast, a proud member of the Food Media Network, and I hope you enjoyed it. Please let us know your feedback and comments. And if we should even continue this show as is, should we change it up? Maybe we should stop it all together. We want to produce the best show possible. So please let us know what you think. Are we on the right track? You can email us your thoughts, suggestions, comments, even testimonials, good or bad, to foodmedianetwork at gmail.com, foodmedianetwork at gmail.com, or even leave us a voicemail, which might be easier. Our voicemail audience hotline there is area code 207-835-1275. That's 207-835-1275. Don't worry, nobody's going to pick up. Leave a voicemail. But I will retrieve it. I promise I will review it. We want to hear from you. And maybe we even share some of the comments with everyone in our next episode if you leave us some, good or bad. So until we meet again, keep learning, keep teaching, and keep cooking. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye.